Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. bringing you today, The Secular Enlightenment by Professor Margaret C. Jacob, has been called a major new history on how the Enlightenment transformed people's everyday lives. It's a panoramic account of the radical ways that life began to change for ordinary people in the age of Locke, Voltaire, and Rousseau. In this landmark book, familiar Enlightenment figures share places with voices that have remained largely unheard until now, from free thinkers and Freemasons to French materialists, anti-clerical Catholics, pantheists, pornographers, readers, and travelers. Jacob, one of our most esteemed historians of the Enlightenment, reveals how this newly secular outlook was not a wholesale rejection of Christianity, but rather a new mental space in which to encounter the world on its own terms. She takes readers from London and Amsterdam to Berlin, Vienna, Paris, and Naples, drawing on rare archival materials to show how ideas central to the emergence of secular democracy touched all facets of daily life. Human frailties, once attributed to sin, were now viewed through the lens of the newly conceived social sciences. People entered churches not to pray, but to admire the architecture, and some began to spend their Sunday mornings reading a newspaper or even a risque book. The secular-minded pursued their own temporal and commercial well-being without concern for the life hereafter, regarding their successes as rewards for their actions and their failures as the result of blind economic forces. A wonderful work of intellectual and cultural history, the secular enlightenment demonstrates how secular values and pursuits took hold of 18th century Europe, spilled into the American colonies, and left their lasting imprint on the Western world for generations to come. Margaret Jacob is Distinguished Professor of History at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her many books include The Radical Enlightenment, Pantheists, Freemasons, and Republicans, and The First Knowledge Economy. Human Capital and the European Economy, 1750 to 1850. She joins me today from Los Angeles to tell me about her new book. Hello, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Professor Margaret Jacob, who's agreed to talk with us about her book, The Secular Enlightenment. Peg, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. First, I want to start by asking you a bit about yourself. How did you end up in your field? Oh, how did I become a historian? Well, I think one key to that is that my mother was born a Catholic in Northern Ireland. And if the Irish have nothing else, they have history. And to her, Cromwell was a living figure. (laughs) See what I mean? And she had that sense that history could be unjust. And she talked about history all the time. And so I kind of naturally fell into being interested in it. And then my family was very political. And it helps to think about politics as one other way into history. I mean, so much written history is about politics. So it was a lot of different things. Wonderful. Maybe next, uh, tell us how you came to write this particular book. 
Well, I, I have a fairly long career of writing about the 18th century and various aspects of it. And one of my first books was called The Radical Enlightenment. And I there I sketched out themes that, to which I will return in the secular enlightenment. Another factor is that, again, I came from a world where people knew about intolerance, about um, um, the absence of freedom in the normal sense of the term, whether it's you know, religious or political or whatever. So I, I came to see the Enlightenment values were a human construction. They were not just in the very nature of things as the way some people assume they are because that's how we live, but rather they had to be invented. They had to be created out of whole cloth by a whole set of factors. Okay. So moving on to the book, uh, you begin by giving a bit of an overview of the cultural climate in Europe that created the conditions that allowed for the blossoming of Enlightenment thought. And this Mm -hmm. includes scientific advancements in astronomy and mathematics, for example, as well as in discoveries about non-European societies around the world that's made possible by travel at the time. So in general, this seems to be a time of intellectual expansion. Can you give us Mm -hmm. a sense of what was happening then? Well, if you think about the period from, say, 1600 to 1750, in that 150 years, Europeans discovered two new worlds. One was on our globe, and the other was in the heavens. One came from overseas trade and exploration. The other came from the hypotheses of the new science, from Copernicus right through to Isaac Newton. And that, that was an opening up. Of, of the human mind that was distinctive, it was unique. When I teach it, I try to say to my students, imagine how the intellectual climate would change if we discovered for sure that there was life, recognizable life, human life in the planet somewhere. And that would change our whole cosmic sense, for the good or for the bad. Initially, it would be neutral. It would just be, oh, my God. Look at all these people. <laughs> and I think the discovery, well, for instance, in the 1600s, there were about five or six books that talked about these discoveries in detail, complete with engravings. By 1700, there were hundreds of such books with engravings. And so you could imagine um, the, the way people lived in what is today Mexico or today China. And all of these things were new and different. And then perhaps one of the most extraordinary books appeared beginning in 1727. It was called The Ceremonies and Customs of All the Peoples of the World. And it was an attempt to show all the religions known to humankind, but to do so with a level hand, with a... a, a a tolerant sense, a sense of difference, but not to condemn. And that was brand new. And it, that comes in the period I'm talking about, but late in the period. I mean, the most of the literature looked at the savages, so-called, of the New World and said, oh, my God, this is horrible, or looked at the Chinese, uh, and w- there they were more um, appreciative because well, the Chinese had a very old civilization and everyone knew it. But still, they were exotic. They were different. So it's not until really the 1730s that you begin to get a literature 
and, and also with engravings, I can't emphasize enough the importance of the imagery that showed what people thought they saw in Africa, in what is today um, Central America, um, what what it was Canada among the Iroquois, etc. So there were depictions of Indians and Chinese and Africans, and and this was really a whole new approach. And that book was in print as late as the mid twentieth century. Wow. Um, yeah. If you look it up in your library, it comes either either Bernard Picard, P-I-C-A-R-T, or uh, John Frederick Bernard. Um, generally, you'll find it under one or the other, or sometimes both, in your card catalog. And I'm sure the University of Toronto has copies of it, and probably several other Canadian libraries do as well. And it's well worth, and it's also available online, is well worth looking at to give you a sense of, wow, what this must have been like to see peoples that one had heard about but you know, didn't know anything about. And so the, ex- the expansion of space was combined with a growing sense of, of the age of the world and also the place of the world in a larger cosmic picture, that the sun was in the center and not the earth, et cetera, et cetera. All those changes made for a different intellectual climate. Having said that, there's no reason for it to turn toward religious toleration, for example. It could have turned toward a brutal dislike of all these people and a dislike of other, well, a dislike of other religions. That was there already. But it could have heightened that. Instead, it, it had the opposite effect gradually. I don't know if that answers your question, but... Oh, I think it does, because I think you're highlighting the fact that um, it's so easy for us to just take for granted the kind of way that we understand reality, really. Um, the right. nature of our world, the nature of our place in the world. Um, and so your first chapter, or your next chapter, where you talk about our sense of time, I mean, it's we can put ourselves in the shoes of people who aren't aware of other countries or other, you know, vastly different civilizations existing and, and so forth. But that struck me as a really much more difficult to put myself in the perspective of of people before the enlightenment with this pre-enlightenment perspective on time which you go into at more length in the next section so maybe um because it's clearly things would have seemed to that or things did move a lot slower Mm -hmm. Um, we talk all the time about how fast things move now this kind of thing but also that their perception of time was very much shaped by christianity at least in europe so maybe Mm -hmm. explain to us what that means well the, the the bible is very clear about the fact that the world began at a certain moment uh creation and the later books of the New Testament in particular are very clear about the fact that the world is going to end at some appointed time that is not clear to anybody in particular, although a major growth industry in this period was trying to figure out when the end would come. And that belief that there's only still people who believe that the end is coming. And that you find this among evangelical Christians to this day. And... Um, that gives you a very different place in the world. If you can imagine there's a moment when it began, 
and there's a moment when it's going to end. Now, Protestants generally believed, uh, following Archbishop Usher, that the world began in roughly 4004 B.C., and that it would end, well, Isaac Newton thought that it would probably end around 2050. There were various, the, the more radical politically, the more radical you were, the more you thought that the end was coming really soon. But you had to get ready for it. You had to prepare people for the second coming of Christ, for the judging of the, well, to this day, one of the very best places that you can go to do research, genealogical research, is the Mormon Library here in, in Los Angeles, and of course there's one in Utah. The Mormons believe that when Christ comes again, he needs to have an inventory of all the peoples of the world. And they have gone out and Xeroxed and microfilmed and copied uh, the record, the birth records and the death records of just about every country in the world, if you can imagine this. Um, they make a little bit of money off this by a thing called Ancestry.com, where you, anybody can go. That's a Mormon. I did not realize that was Mormon. Yeah, well, it, they, they don't advertise that fact, but that's that's where they're getting all of their records and I think they've probably digitized most of them. I mean, I have a colleague, for example, who does social history in 17th century Bristol in England. She's in that Mormon library all the time because she's looking to find out who was born when and who married whom and um, when they died, you know, if they were up on a criminal case, what happened to them, all that kind of thing is available right here in Los Angeles um, at the Mormon library. So that is today's world. Now, you can do this technologically now, but you couldn't do it in the 17th century, obviously. That didn't stop me from speculating, from trying to read the caref carefully in between the lines of the Bible and figure out when is the end coming. And if you were a radical millenarian, as were many of the colonists that founded the New World, the, the um, English-speaking colonists. This was, by the way, much more common among Protestants than Catholics. Uh, the Church never preached that there was an end coming, but Protestant, Protestant uh, theology basically insisted upon it. And so you wanted to know when and how and what you could do to prepare for it. Well, the Mormons came up with a smart idea that what we need is an inventory so that we will know who all the people are that were in the world. And as a result, they've given us this wonderful archive for people who do social history or criminal history or the history of disease. I mean, all that stuff can be done through the Mormon archives. And you write too that um, the perception was, or they they tend to, tended to think more about their afterlife than they did about their present day life. I suppose. Yes, uh, yes, I think they did. One of the best um, insights into what ordinary people thought is a diary that was made by a Leeds. 
clothier. That's somebody who goes out and collects um, wool from the farms and brings it in and spins it and then takes it to market. This man, Joseph Ryder was his name, and he left, oh gosh, 30 some odd volumes of his personal private diary, over a million words, in which he recorded just about every day, but certainly three or four times a week, his thoughts about what was going on. He was obsessed with the issue that his growing prosperity might jeopardize his possibility of salvation. And he, he went to chapel, he talked with friends, they would pray together, there was a whole world built around the hope for salvation. And he, now, writing, you might say, was exceptional. Anybody who writes a million words in a diary is exceptional, but he is not um, an intellectual. He's not. He's educated. He's literate. He knows poetry. He's making a living, a very good living, uh, in the clothing industry in Leeds, in Yorkshire, in the middle of the 18th century. And what is he talking about with himself? His private thoughts, he's talking about salvation. He's also talking about the price of wool, you know, the various other things, but the, the, the center of his personal intellectual life was salvation. Hmm. Um, there aren't many Joseph writers to be found in the period after 1800. Of course, you can, you can find them today, you can find people, but that kind of deep religiosity becomes less common after the Enlightenment. It's still present. I don't want to forever be interpreted as saying that religion's out the window, it doesn't exist, don't, don't think about it. That's nonsense. But the secular, this world, occupies much more of our conscious time than it used to. And you write that um, changes in the conception of time through the period between 1650 and 1800 was in part influenced by a number of developments and inventions, uh, such as new ideas about fossils and better access to even just wristwatches and clocks. So can mm -hmm. you tell us about some of these? Well, having uh, time on your person in the form of a pendant watch or the wristwatch is an incredible invention. By 1800, you could get wristwatches in England for, oh, a pound, pound and a half. That was a lot of money, but it was not a prohibited amount of money. In today's currency, it would be kind of hard to say what that would be. It might be $200, but someone who had worked and saved could get a wristwatch. Uh, big clocks become increasingly commonplace, so much so that by the end of the 17th century, travelers would complain if they went to a, to a place, a city, a town that didn't have a clock in the church or a clock accessible so they could tell the time, etc. So making time, instantiating time, making it real, like on your, on your wrist, creates a very different relationship between the individual and time. And it also creates a changing meaning of the word punctual. To be punctual used to mean um, careful about one's person. 
you are um, um, worried about your dress, your you know your manners, your behavior. And by the late 18th century, being punctual meant what it means today. So there's that, there's all those changes that are happening because of the technology of time. So maybe explain to us next what is meant by secular time. How is it different from the religious perspective of time? And what effect did this new way of understanding time have on people? Well, in the Western world, secular time comes increasingly to mean a much longer period for the world to have existed, that the creation story is it just doesn't work. And by the middle of the 18th century, there were various theorists who had come to the conclusion that the world was thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. Similarly, increasingly, people no longer believed in the prophecies at the end of the world. They thought that was a nice story, but it didn't, didn't do what needed to be done so people would understand about time. Um, and a lot of things that are contributing to this. Uh, technology is one thing. But also, um, people become more active in their business lives. Uh, the growth of capitalism in the West meant that you could really, if you were involved in something where you could make money, you could spend more and more time doing that. So the, act, the accumulation of wealth, which was once an aristocratic privilege, becomes increasingly possible for people who are merchants, traders, um, manufacturers. And the other thing that interrupts all of this, in a sense, is the um, creation of steam technology, the industrialization process, which is uh, visible in Britain by the 1770s. And the British are the very first to industrialize, but then very quickly they're followed by the Belgians, by the French, later Germany, etc. And eventually industrialization becomes the way of the modern world. And that speeds things up a lot. So next you look at some examples of the life of what you call the enlightened everyman who seems to be generally interested in education, beauty, technological, things like that, while being generally uninterested in either religion or, or atheism, to be fair, uh, just mm -hmm. not, not thinking about those things as much. And you draw on a number of examples from different areas around Europe. So can you give us some insight into these characters? Well, so, sometimes what I did was just go into a catalog and find a French, Dutch, German source written, say, 1720, just for the sake of looking and seeing what they're talking about in their letters, in their diaries. These are anonymous people, but they're literate, highly literate, if they're leaving behind books and you know, diaries and things like that. And you, you can see a gradual process whereby more and more attention is being paid to their occupation, to their family, to uh, civic life. And religion, of course, but the other things become increasingly more commonplace. And that's what I would call a process of secular secularization of time. You know, somebody doesn't sit down and think, well, now I'm going to be secular about time. It just doesn't work that way. 
um, is rather, I, I think another way of saying this, it's very helpful, is to imagine religious time, which still exists, obviously, as bracketed, as having a separate place, perhaps at church, or perhaps when you read the Bible. And that was separate, private, and distinct from everything else. So the amount of time spent in religious matters became increasingly privatized, is the way I would put it. I mean, you still have religious ceremonies and public and so on and so forth, although, again, more so in Catholic Europe than in Protestant Europe. Okay, that does make sense. Uh, you also talk a little bit about how women engaged in the intellectual activity of the time, usually through private visits and certain publications that they shared and read amongst themselves. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, I can. Well, first of all, I can talk about it from, from the point of view of the really extraordinary. That is, we've discovered what we think is the first women's scientific society anywhere in Europe. And it met in Middleburg in Zeeland, beginning in about 1785, and it continued for another oh, 130 years. This was made up of entirely of wealthy women, and the Dutch Republic, remember, was one of the wealthiest places in the world, even in this later period where they'd gone through some hard times. And... Um, we, we get a good sense of what they were interested in scientifically, um, what they read, what they talked about. They were reading the major philosophes like Voltaire, but they were also receiving lessons in Newtonian physics. And they were experimenting. They owned a cabinet of uh, experimental tools. And some of them, in turn, had children, male children, who went on to become scientists. And this was an incredibly rich archive, and we just kind of stumbled upon it about, I don't know, 23 years ago. We think that's the first ever. But, I mean, that's a very spectacular, you know, you can pin it down. We know the names. We know how much they were worth financially at their death, because you can look that up. But there's also a growing evidence of women meeting in private circles, in uh, reading societies, in uh, clubs of one sort or another. The public realm is still very much a masculine realm and will remain so into the 20th century. But this does not say, this does not mean that women are shying away from books, for example. We have the records of bookstores in 17th century and 18th century Holland. And the Dutch are, the, in 1700, half of the books in Europe were produced in the Dutch Republic. And spectacular printing presses. And their bookstores kept inventories of who borrowed what or who bought what. And we can see the growing role that women are playing in that marketplace. Now, maybe though they're bringing those books home for their husbands, could be. But the reality is that they're in the bookshop more and more. So clearly, the literary world interested them. And then, of course, you begin to see women writing, often uh, in pseudonyms, but they are beginning to write. The 18th century is really the great period of women emerging as literary figures. Fantastic. Uh, 
So your next chapter looks at the philosophical climate in France, and in particular, um, some shocking subversive publications that were rattling the monarchies, including a work called Le Tri... Le Traité des Trois Imposteurs, which you call the most outrageous text of the entire century, as mm -hmm. well as the book you already mentioned, Picard and Bernard's Religious Ceremonies of the World, um, which put together something like an encyclopedia of world religions. So please tell us a, a little bit more about these livres scandaleux. Yes. All right. Um, I hope I'm not going to offend any of your listeners when I tell you that this book, the Traité de Trois Imposteurs, um, it first appears in 1710 in, in manuscript copies. And let, let me just be immodest and say that I discovered where this thing came from, who was involved. We didn't know any of that until the late 1970s when I was in the library at Lyme University. The three imposters are, or were, Jesus, Moses, and Mohammed. They existed to fool people, to con people, to get them to believe in absurdities. And they were doing this in order to enhance their own power, and they created this fog, this cloud called religion. And Millions of people have been hoodwinked by it. And the alternative to all of this kind of religion is some kind of pure materialism. There's a debt here to Spinoza, misread perhaps, but um, the notion that nature is God or God is nature, that all there is is the natural world. And that's what we should be worshiping. So that's, and that is without a, a doubt the most outrageous text of the 18th century. Even the Dutch authorities, and mind you, it was written in French, and, and normally they didn't bother with books in French because they were only going to be read by, what, 10% of the population at most. They went after every copy they could get a hold of. And this was scandal beyond anything anybody had ever imagined. And it was reprinted and reprinted and reprinted and translated to many languages. And I think it's still in print. I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked up modern editions of it, but it was out there for a very long time. How did the average person receive something like that? Oh, they were horrified, I'm sure. They, they couldn't believe that someone would say something so outrageous. So it's... Indeed. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask, is it, was its popularity, its enduring popularity, that just to in, indulge in that sense of shock and outrage then? Partly, I suspect, and um, partly it was so shocking. I and mean, when things are shocking, people want to learn about them. That's just one of the things in human nature. Um, clergy wanted to know because they wanted to see what these arguments were like because they were hearing people saying things like this. About 30 years ago, uh, a thing called Middle Eastern Watch got in touch with me about a man who had been sentenced to death in, I believe, Saudi Arabia for having gone around and saying, said that um, Mohammed was an imposter. And they got in touch with me because they thought I knew something about the history of that notion. 
and what happened. You know, and so uh, I could say that the authorities in Europe would have liked to have caught the people who did this, but they never really did. And we do know who they are. We know the coterie that put this out in the world. And they, interestingly enough, were French-speaking refugees who had become deeply disillusioned with religion. And they started this activity around 1710. Um, How do we know about this? We know because they formed a little circle, a, a club, that called themselves the Knights of Jubilation. How did I find out about these knights? <laughs> I found them from a manuscript in the British Library, written in French, in the papers of the English notorious English freethinker John Toland. And the documents were signed. They had a, a grand master, they had a grand secretary, they had a grand this, they called one another brothers. Indeed, this thing looked a lot like Freemasonry, and I think it was an early form of it. Anyway. I looked all these guys up, and it turned out that the man who wrote, who was the secretary, a man called Prosper Marchand, who's a known commodity, I mean, there's a literature on Marchand, left behind a massive collection of his manuscripts, which he donated to the University Library in Leiden. He died in, I think, 56, 1756. So I got on the ferry in those days, and I went to... Leiden. Well, first I went to The Hague, because there there's a great Masonic library, and I had letters about Dutch Freemasonry from this collection, and so I went, and I saw the librarian, I pulled out these Xerox, these letters, and I said, do you know who this is? It was a man called Rousset de Missy. He said, yes, that's one of our founders. I said, oh, <laughs> do you know there's letters by and from him about a 20-minute bus ride from here in Leiden, and he did not know that. And he helped me figure out who this guy was and what he did, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the Marchand manuscripts, there were letters now written about 25 years later when these are much older men, reminiscing about the naughtiness that they got up to in their youth. And one of these letters said, you remember the Traité de Toisine-Bosque? Well, you know where we got, and we got this from this one, and he's the one who copied it, and and Rousset was involved in putting out an edition of it, and I read this, and I thought, my God, this is a a revelation about the the manuscript in the 18th century that everybody wanted to know about, and nobody knew who did this. And it sort of opened up a whole world. And it also convinced me that the Enlightenment had many sides. One side was rather conservative, moderate, and the other was radical. And by radical, I mean it was deeply hostile to religion, deeply hostile to the clergy, um, atheistic, materialistic, etc., etc. Wow, that must have been a tremendously exciting find. Yes, it was. <laughs> this was before email. It was before. So I, I had to phone up uh, at home to tell them that I had found this. Yeah, it's one of these things that happens. And you get, you get in the archives and it's going to Leiden, for example, was off the beaten track. You know, everybody was working, working in the Bibliothèque Nationale and the British Library and, 
even the Royal Library in The Hague, but here was this other library of a very old university. I mean, Descartes went to Leiden. And sometimes you just get lucky. You're the real-life Indiana Jones of uh, the European (laughs) Enlightenment. (laughs) That's wonderful. Well, I want to talk next about the widow Stockdorf because she's also an incredibly titillating figure in this story. Um, Because as you mentioned, the booksellers who are willing to trade in subversive works um, and sometimes pornography as well, which hasn't come up yet, um, Mm -hmm. the booksellers themselves have their own fascinating roles to play in this context. So please do tell us about the widow Stockdorf of Strasbourg and the books on her shopping list. Oh, she she's a wonderful figure. I found her in the manuscripts at the Archive in uh, at the Bastille in Paris, and you know, again, it's one of these dossiers that you just sort of come across. Now, she others had seen her name. You know, she was a, she was a known commodity, but in this dossier, we have the fact that the police arrested her in Paris that she had traveled to Paris from Strasbourg in the company of two abbés. Now, what she was doing with these two clergymen, I don't know. And she was out to buy books. She kept lists of what she wanted, what she already purchased. What was extraordinary was that we, you know, two centuries later, go back and look in this period and say, oh, yeah, that book's pornographic and that book's materialist and that book's atheist. And we identify them out of a knowledge of, of much reading from the past in the period. The widow Starkdorf knew exactly what she was looking for. Exactly. She had every naughty book known in Europe in the period, almost all in French. Now she was, and by natively, she was a German speaker. We know that because we have the private letters that she wrote from the Bastille to her children back in Strasbourg. Telling them, oh, I'm okay, not to worry. In fact, she was in for nearly two years. And you look at this list and you say, I just figured this out. She already knew it. She was living in this world of books, and she knew exactly what she was looking for. Telling us that the genre of forbidden books or the genre of pornography existed as a real thing in the minds of contemporaries. And if you were a bookseller of a certain ilk, and she was dealing internationally, it wasn't just Strasbourg. She had uh, businesses in um, in the Netherlands as well. Uh, she knew her customers, and she knew her clientele, and she knew what she was looking for. And she was looking for exactly the things that we would label. Danny Hill, for example, pornography. Therese Filosoff, uh, Therese was uh, put in print about 1748. Therese is a prostitute who doesn't take money. And she's a philosoph. She's a philosopher who preaches materialism, atheism. And Therese is on the Widow Stockdorf's list, along with an early French translation of Fanny Hill. And she had this. We don't know where she got it. I mean, in some ways, it's better not knowing. You just figured, what did she do? She just walked the streets of Paris and went into one shop after another, or she had a dealer. She had somebody she went to said, I want this, 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 and this, and he would come up with it. And high on her list were books by and about the Abbe, the, um, the French materialist, the Baron Dolbach. 
Dolbach is to this day the most um, systematic and original materialist thinker of the period. He wrote a thing called The System of Nature, in which he laid out the way the world operates in a totally natural context without any reference to God or creation or any of that stuff. And she was collecting the Baron Dolbach, along with many of his friends, and also anonymous works that are to this day still anonymous, but we know more about, in some cases, more about who wrote them or who was circulating them. And now we have the real Stockdorf, you know, making a good business out of these. I mean, she was not poor. And she was not happy being in the Bastille, but hey, she took a risk and she came out two years later and probably continued to sell. Fantastic. All right. Well, next we move on to Scotland, which had its own unique religious and academic climate and bred some very recognizable thinkers of the age, such as David Hume and Adam Smith. So please tell us, what did the progress of the Enlightenment look like here? Well, if you if you leave Paris and you go to Edinburgh and, and Glasgow, which are the two kind of centers of um, Scottish life, Scottish intellectual life, it's a very different scene in, say, 1720s onward, whereas they, the French is, are heavily censored. I mean, the censors are everywhere. And yet there is also a quite lively clandestine trade going on in bad books, what the authorities call Mauvais Not so in Scotland. There isn't the same um, radical side to it. The authorities were looking for bad books, of course, but they didn't find that many. Instead, what you see in Scotland is a very rich civic life organized around male fraternities and clubs. And these were, and the records of these minutes exist in many cases, and they, they are fabulous insight into what men talked about when they gathered, what were they interested in, and. Predictably, they were talking about politics, they were talking about uh, religion, uh, and they were talking about women. They were trying to make sense out of why are some women smarter than men? Why are women not being properly educated? Um, these were liberal thinkers. And among the air ranks was David Hume, who was not particularly pro-female at all. The whole thing bothered him. Adam Smith, we don't know his views. They were very close friends. Smith had his manuscripts burned before he died. I suspect there was a story in there that he didn't want anybody knowing about. And they were exploring all kinds of issues. What are the best forms of taxation? What are the what's the meaning of slavery? Is it always immoral? Is it you know, et cetera, et cetera? Taxes, excise taxes, all the topics that ordinary interested people who want to talk about politics would talk about. Plus these things like women, women's education, um, and religion. There are a lot of talk. And the other thing is that these clubs forbade the discussion of specific religions or specific political points of view. They wanted this to be a kind of neutral space where you could talk freely, but you, were, you didn't have a party line, as it were. And it must have been uh, pretty amazing. I mean, the people who were sitting at table 
are among some of the great thinkers of the 18th century. They're breaking bread together and they're talking. And they've got, luckily for us, they've got somebody who's recording what they're saying. And that makes it a lot easier for all of us to know about the Scottish Enlightenment, as well as, of course, the rich literature. They published a lot. And it's quite remarkable. It really is. And the other thing is that you, you learn that they, many of the men in these clubs who talked to Adam Smith and what, were actually practicing science as well. They had positions in the university where they taught astronomy and physics and all sorts of things. You'll excuse. That's Min, Mitzi, you may hear in the background. She was one year old last Monday. Oh. <laughs> And she doesn't have any discipline about her whatsoever. <laughs> and um, so what we can tell from this world is that someone like Adam Smith knew cutting-edge technology, knew about the steam engine, he knew about the advances that were being made in mechanics and engineering, in astronomy, and all of these things. So he, he's not just an armchair philosopher, if you want to use that term. He's a man about town. His friends are, you know, active in the sciences and the arts. He, he, he loved literature, and he was a bachelor, as were his friends, and so that, they, that was his sole social life, his meeting with Hume and um, all these other characters and having a meal and talking. Luckily, with a secretary present. Hmm. All right. Well, now we travel to Berlin and Vienna, or more specifically, Enlightenment thinking as it was represented in the German language. So you write that yes. the German Enlightenment in particular, and I'll quote you here, cannot be understood outside the conditions created by a generation of religious warfare in Central Europe. So please tell us a little bit about this context and how Enlightenment thinking developed here. Well, the Thirty Years' War was uh, horrendous. It occurred in, in German-speaking lands for the most part. It involved every major European power with the exception of Britain. The Swedes had an army there. The French had an army. Descartes fought in the army on the Dutch side because the French, you know, one of the first examples we have of rail politique the French joined the Protestant side in the Thirty Years' War. They didn't want to see advantage going to their Catholic rivals. We estimate that about a third of the population of Germany either died or was displaced. In other words, they've been lost. We don't know where they were. We don't know if they're in the ground or if they've gone to some other city. And this went on for 30 years, give or take. Not every year was total warfare everywhere, but the armies were on the move throughout much of the period. The result was a bitterness in matters of religion between Protestants and Catholics, absolute bitterness. The other thing was a, a, a growing sense among a few people who watched all this and said, we have got to find a way out of religious hatred. We just got to, or we're going to all kill one another. And so in the universities in particular, 
you begin to see, and in the theology faculties, interestingly enough, thinkers who are saying we've got to find a kind of common religiosity, or maybe not the same religion, but we've got to find a set of principles that we can all agree upon. And that's one element that goes into making the German Enlightenment. The other thing that goes into making it is, of course, there is no German. There's no nation state. It's all these different areas. Um, the thing that unifies them is language. Uh, in some cases, religion. Some territories are notoriously Catholic and others are notoriously Protestant. But princes ruled in their different territories, in Brandenburg, in Prussia, in the Austrian um, Empire, uh, with its capital in Vienna. And there was a lot of rivalry, as you can well imagine, and the form of government that you find in the German-speaking lands, with a few exceptions, is what we call absolutism. Absolute monarchs who are ultimately the sole authority in matters of law, custom, religion, you name it. And some of these absolute monarchs um, gave pride of place to the universities. Others were very nervous and careful about what went on in them. There were enormous differences. But it did mean that the German philosophs, uh, people like uh, Lessing and Herder, were more cautious than their French counterparts. Because the French just ran away. They went to the Dutch Republic, they went to Geneva, and they also had an enormously vast underground publishing system that was not available in the German-speaking lands. So the German Enlightenment is more cautious politically than its British or French or Dutch counterpart. Um, but it is also deeply interested in religion. And you get a, a group of thinkers, many of whom knew one another. I think of Moses Mendelssohn, who is one of the most interesting religious thinkers of the 18th century. He is a Jew who was attacked all the time by anti-Semites, but he formed a deep personal friendship with Lessing, with various of the other philosophes. And um, Moses Mendelssohn... Um, thought about how the world could be made tolerant, how we could eliminate anti-Semitism, how we could uh, validate people who are not religious fanatics and who do not want to persecute their counterparts in the other religions, but how they can le learn to live peaceably. So you have a body of thought in Germany that is deeply focused on the issue of religion and how do we achieve a common religiosity, not the same religion, but a, a sense of the world that we can all agree upon, and that is tolerant. Hmm. Okay. Let's move on to uh, developments in Naples and Milan, uh, which was dominated by the Jesuits, the Papacy, and the Inquisition. So what kind of environment did this context create in what is now Italy at the beginning of the Enlightenment, and how were free thinkers able to get off the ground here? Well, certain words come to mind. The environment was repressive. The free thinkers were always in danger. Um, 
they many of them fled and went to uh, the Dutch Republic, was it London? They, they turn up all over the place. Um, the Italian Enlightenment I, is the most difficult I found of all the. the I mean, I personally do not work in Italian history. Um, I read Italian, but not very well. I, I use my Latin and fudget, you know. Um, so I rely upon other scholars of whom there's a tremendous, I mean, Italian scholarship is equal to anything produced in this country or France or Canada. You know, the Italians are really good and they're very helpful. And But I found it a very hard period, a, a very hard area to work in. Because every time you turn around, there's some Jesuit under a stone or uh, some inquisitional figure who's called somebody in and has arrested them in charges of heresy or something. So um, the forces of intolerance are more visible than they are in many other parts of Europe. Hmm. Fascinating. All right. Well, your final chapter is devoted to the 1790s, and this is the decade of the French Revolution and marks uh, for many the end of the period of the Enlightenment, as much as these things have definitive ends. And you write that in part inspired by events in France and the new uh, the new United States Constitution. A revolutionary Mm -hmm. ardor was sweeping through Europe. Uh, So how is this era different from the slow and soft action of the Enlightenment? Well, it, it is much more politically engaged and uh, with a greater sense of immediacy. And one of the things the French Revolution did was invent the democratic subject. And the radicals or reformers in the rest of Europe, the democratic person became a kind of ideal. How do you make yourself into a democratic person? What does that mean? And among the young uh, British radicals, people like, and this is their early phase, people like Wordsworth and Coleridge and uh, Southey um, and the poet Thomas Campbell, a whole group of these young men who are in university just as the revolution breaks out and who are then trying to find themselves in a, a, a new world one which they thought of as the result of the Enlightenment, but they wondered how can we invent this kind of um, forwardness and democratic thinking in our own countries. And that remains an issue until many of them after 1800 become conservative, etc. But the the early Coleridge, the early Wordsworth, Sonny, Humphrey Davy, um, they were interested in experimentation, scientific, but also political. And among the things they did, in the Humphrey Davy uh, isolated nitrous oxide, uh, what we call laughing gas. So these guys got together in Davy's laboratory in London, and guess what? They sniffed the gas. <laughs> they were, and then they wrote about what they felt. Now, with Coleridge, you got food lacan, but from the other guys, you get a kind of gibberish, you know. And it's absolutely fascinating to read these descriptions. But what they're trying to do is get outside themselves, find a way, um, the way young people experiment to this day with drugs, etc. And uh, one of the 
puzzles in all of this is why did Humphrey Davy and his friends not apply nitrous oxide to the problem of pain? Because it's only in the 1840s that nitrous oxide is taken up by dentists and is to this day mixed with oxygen. One of the things you get if you're going to have a wisdom tooth pulled, you know, they, they put this mask on and you get high on nitrous oxide mixed with oxygen. Well, they didn't know what to do. They didn't, what they did know was that if they took in too much, too quickly, it could kill you. So they didn't know how to mix it. They didn't, and so they they pulled back eventually from using the gas. And as a result, it was another forty years before somebody went back and looked the gas at the gas again. Much much more was known about gases, and they mixed it with other with oxygen in particular. So there's all that kind of scientific experimentation, but also it's 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 experimentation with personhood. You know, what, what makes me think the things I think when I have nitrous oxide in my system? How can I capture those thoughts and, and turn them into poetry or into reforming ideas? And that makes them very interesting. In the 1790s is this period of these radical attempts at a new self-fashioning. Well, that's really fascinating. Um. Okay, so to conclude, I want to ask you about how we can trace the influence of the Enlightenment uh, or Enlightenment thought up to today. Clearly, its influence was not uniform during its day, and now the various Western societies retain elements of it to different degrees. So can you give us a sense of the Enlightenment's legacy? Well, you could look at the Declaration of Human Rights, which came out in 1948. The Canadians signed on to it. We all signed on to it. And it's as enlightened a document as you'd ever want to see. It is a statement of how we have to allow people to have their beliefs and their practices, and provided they don't cause upheaval, they'd have to be allowed to live their lives in peace. Human rights is one of the big legacies of the Enlightenment and human rights to this day we grapple with. I was in the car this morning listening to this discussion that's going on in Washington about members of this corrupt government we now have who um, want to put, uh, put in the policy of separating children from their parents at the border. It's an obscene, obscene practice and that's what's happening now or at least they want to, of course the courts are throwing all these things out and saying you can't do that well the reason why the courts are saying you can't do that is that this is all part of human rights we, we, we have got to abide by the principles to which we signed on or we will perish as a democracy there's no question in my mind that that is the case and what we're talking about here is returning to the enlightenment for help for guidance for how people have to be treated in order to preserve their dignity and their freedom. Indeed. That's a good note to end on. Well, Peg, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's been really fun talking about the Enlightenment and bringing this time period to life through the stories of the characters that were there. Um, but before we go, can you tell us what you're currently working on? Oh yeah. Well, at the, at the at this absolute moment, I am watching my kitchen being torn out. 
because we're free to eat. <laughs> that's not what you were asking, but that is rather... <laughs> that's all consuming. Right, indeed. But I think the next thing I'm going to do is, is a book on Unitarians, Unitarianism, and why Unitarians. Well, I've always had an interest in industrial development and technology and whatnot. You go into these industrial areas, Manchester, Birmingham, Leeds, Sheffield, 1770s, 1780s, look at who the industrialists are, scrape the surface, and they're Unitarians. Why? What is it about Unitarianism that contributed so many um, enlightened manufacturers who wanted religion, but they wanted a form of religion that they could make their own, that they could live with, and so I'm I'm increasingly drawn to not Unitarianism as a history of religion, but rather what is it in this mindset that that makes for people who are industrious, mercantile, and progressive in many cases. And some people say, oh, well, they got rid of Christ. They didn't get rid of Christ. What they did was humanize Christ. And what does that really mean? How did they do that and why did they do it? So that's sort of what I'm thinking about when I'm not trying to escape the banging and the clanging. <laughs> well, thanks for putting it on hold for us. <laughs> well, I tried. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Oh, it's been really wonderful. Thanks again. Uh, really enjoyed your book. I was so glad to have the chance to chat with you about it in person. You're welcome. I want to thank you for listening to New Books and Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Margaret Jacob about her book, The Secular Enlightenment. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. I'm also interested in hearing from you about your thoughts on this podcast and the materials we cover. I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on this book. You can find me on Twitter at Carrie Lynnland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. Also, be sure to like the New Books in Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. In the meantime, I'll wish you au revoir until my next conversation about New Books in Secularism.